Well, good morning, church. Y'all doing well? Good. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse. It's a joy to be with you, getting to preach God's word to you. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Uh, And I just want to give you a short preface. Not only are we starting a new sermon series for the season of Advent, but as we begin in Genesis 3, most of our time today will be spent there. However, we are going to be looking at one or two verses in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. So uh, just be ready to flip through some of those pages as we work through our time. Now, while you go ahead and get ready, I have a couple of announcements for you. I'll try to be brief uh, and and go pretty quickly on these. You could visit our website in the event that I go a little too fast. The first one is in regard to kids ministry. Uh, After much prayer and planning, we are going to begin to reintroduce or phase back uh, into having kids ministry on Sunday mornings. And so we're really excited about that. Therefore, here is what you need to know. The first thing is for the month of December, we're only going to be having kids ministry on the 13th. I believe that is a week from today, and so it's going to be on the second floor, and so you could uh, check your kids in. I believe we're only going to be doing uh, pre-K and toddlers. Elsie's giving me the nod. So we're going to be doing pre-K and then toddlers for now. That begins December 13th, and that is only for the month of December. When we transition into the new year, Lord willing, beginning in January, kids ministry will meet twice a month. And so we'll give you more of those details as we move forward. If you have any questions, please uh, go to LC or visit our website and she'll hook you up with all of that information. The second announcement is in regard to our order of service. Um, because here's one of the things we, we have so deeply valued our time in communion where we have seen uh, not just personal worship, but family discipleship take place. We do not want that to, to go away. Therefore, uh, in light of reintroducing kids ministry and so that we make the transitions uh, smooth as possible and maintain family discipleship, uh, next week on the 13th, we're changing our order of service. And so in a nutshell, normally we begin with one song, or excuse me, three songs, some announcements, and then we'll go into the sermon and then communion. What we're going to be doing next week is keeping the three songs, so that part stays the same. But after the songs are done, we're going to go into a time of communion before we get into the sermon. That means that you need to get here on time uh, if you want to uh, participate in this meal of fellowship that we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, I know that we run on valley time, and to say that you shouldn't is heretical, but I don't care. We need to be here on time, okay? Uh, The third announcement, I think that was it. The third announcement is uh, the Christmas Eve service. Uh, The Christmas Eve service is scheduled for Thursday, December 24th at 6 p.m. here at the incubator. Uh, And so just make sure you know that, mark your calendars. All of this you'll see online. I just want to hook you up with as much detail as I can right now. But December 24th, Christmas Eve, 6 p.m. here at the incubator. If you have any questions, talk to Elsie or Christina. 
because they no more. Um, that's all I have. I'd really like to just dig into our, our time this morning. And so once again, if you just joined us, we're going to find ourselves in Genesis 3. Uh, we might or we will be looking a little bit at Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 as we move along. So over the Thanksgiving holiday, our grandkids uh, came to, to visit. Uh, their names are Delilah and Ezra. And we got to hang out with them, uh, eat some really good food with them, and, and spend some quality one-on-one time with them. One of the things that my granddaughter Delilah loves to do is come into my office, and she loves to draw on the whiteboard. Sometimes she draws on the whiteboard for 10 minutes. Sometimes we find ourselves drawing on the whiteboard for 30 minutes. Uh, And oftentimes what we end up doing is drawing our hands over and over and over along with flowers and houses. And I'm really glad that those are the only options because I do not know how to draw anything else. But again, for about 30, 45 minutes at a time, we're drawing hands, houses, and flowers. Well, uh, this past week, as she was in my office hanging out and drawing, one of the things I asked Delilah not to do was to lean on this tray where all the markers and some other stuff is. Don't lean on that. That's going to fall, and uh, all the markers are going to splatter everywhere. She leaned on it. Uh, markers went everywhere. The tray went everywhere. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I said, hey, we're going to need to pick the markers up. And she thought the whole thing was hilarious. Uh, I didn't because, uh, because I, I kind of like things neat, but she goes on to grab the markers and she starts chunking them in the office, laughing as she's chunking them at other delicate things that are in the office. And so as, uh, as she's doing that, um, as she's doing that, I wanted us to stop and say, hey, we're not going to draw right now. We need, to, we need to pick up these markers, and, uh, and she's reluctant. She doesn't want to pick them up. And so one of the things that we have been working uh, with Delilah on has been uh, apologizing or, or getting this time where we get to have some one-on-one time and explain, hey, when we make a mistake, we want to apologize. And the thing about it is my granddaughter is amazing at apologizing. She just won't look at you in the eye right? She won't look at you in the eye when it comes to apology, uh, apologies. And so I began to talk to her and address her, hey, we don't want to throw the markers, right? We don't want to break other things. And she's still being rebellious and reluctant and kind of digging her heels in. And then she begins to say, sorry, Papa, sorry, Papa, sorry, Papa. She says it that way. And she's not looking at me and her eyes are moving everywhere because she doesn't want to lock on and admit I did something I wasn't supposed to, right? And so for what seemed to be forever, it was maybe five minutes, um, I, I just sat in my chair and said, hey, we're not going to color anymore until you look at me in the eye. And, uh, and so she's, she's like on my knees and still wanting to play. And eventually she locks eyes with me. And she locks eyes with me and she says, I'm sorry, Papa, for throwing stuff. And so when she said that, at that moment, as soon as Delilah said that, I picked her up. I gave her a big smile. I told her that she was forgiven. I told her that I loved her, and I told her that she is mine. In that moment, I wanted my granddaughter to know that I was going to pursue her, that I was going to pursue her in her rebellion. I was going to pursue her in her shame. I was going to pursue her in grace. We picked everything back up, put the tray back on, started coloring or started drawing more hands, flowers, and houses. 
This morning, we're going to be talking about what it means when God makes a covenant with us. If you didn't know, there are some formal definitions of what a covenant is. One of them is that God enters into a relationship with man on God's terms. I wish to simplify that. That's correct. But I want to simplify it for the sake of our time and the sake of this series. And I want to say that a covenant is simply God pursuing his children. We wanted to open our Advent series with a big picture of God's covenantal love as we see it in the beginning in Genesis. The Advent season focuses on specific times in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we don't want to entertain the Christmas story. Instead, our aim this season is to cultivate a deeper longing for Jesus, our great God and Savior who was and is and is to come. During Advent, we want to focus on the arrival or the coming of our Lord Jesus, the one who would live in our stead, purchase the redemption of sinners with his own blood, reconcile man to God by exchanging his righteousness for our sins so that we may walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to take you back to the beginning where the promise of a Savior is made and kept by God himself. And this promise involves his pursuit and the redemption of his children. So with that being said, I'm going to read Genesis 3 verse 15, and then I'll pray and we'll continue. Here's what Genesis 3.15 says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me pray. God, we begin our time by turning to you and your word and worship and ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would not only be present among us, but that you would be at work in us. God, I pray that as we continue to worship, those who know Jesus already would come to know and long for him even more. And that those who do not know Jesus would come to know him today. God, I ask that you would illuminate our understanding of you through your word And Spirit, I ask that you guide us so that our worship is pleasing to you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, we're going to end up in Genesis 3, but let me take you to Genesis 1. See, one of the key themes in chapter 1 of Genesis is uh, glory. We see that God created everything by the power of his word, yet when it came to the creation of man, God was incredibly intentional. In fact, he was so intentional that he created man and woman distinct. He created man and woman in his image. 
Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him, he created them. This means that our purpose, as we see in Genesis 1, was to glorify God by reflecting his characteristics, that we were to glorify God in all that we did, that we are to ultimately glorify God by worshiping him. In Genesis 1, we see several things happening. One of those is this fancy uh, Hebraic word called shalom, that there is peace not just because stuff isn't uh, going wrong, but because we are not at war with God. And because we are not at war with God, we are in a right relationship with him. In Genesis 1, when it comes to us being created in the image of God, we see that God bestows upon man and woman worth, dignity, and value. In Genesis 1, we see that God gives man and woman their identity. As the story continues, we come into Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, one of the themes that we see is the theme of stewardship. If you go to Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, here's what we see. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, in Genesis 2, after God creates man and woman, he creates us to be stewards and not Owners. That is, everything that God created was provided for so that we would work it, so that we would enjoy it, and ultimately look over creation. I've always made this note in Genesis 2. I love this where he says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. I want you to know two things. This may not have anything to do with the sermon, but maybe you need to hear it. I don't know. I want you to know two things about that, that short verse that he took the man to put him in the garden to work it. I want you to know that work is a post, is, excuse me, is not a post-fall curse, but a pre-fall gift. The Hebraic word for work in this context means to worship. And so in creating us in his image, God provides in a way that we are going to work the land, we're going to enjoy the land, we're going to look over it. Additionally, in the text of Genesis 2, we see that God requires obedience. He tells Adam and Eve, you can do everything that you want. You're going to look over the land. You're going to steward the land that I am entrusting you with. You're going to lead and love your family. You're going to multiply. You're going to have children and do not eat of this one tree. All right, he tells them what to do and he tells them the consequences. If you eat of it, you will surely 
die. I want you to know that even though or as God requires obedience of Adam and Eve, I want you to know that this obedience is a result of who Adam and Eve are. They are his children. In other words, he's not saying, I need you to obey so that you would be mine. It is because you are mine, you are to obey. And that's a wonderful depiction of God as a loving father. We see this proximity that comes with parenthood. Uh, My wife enjoys this show, something about the midwife. I don't remember it. The The call of the midwife. Uh, and it takes place in the 50s and the 60s. Anyway, there is this nurse. Uh, I don't know all their names. One of them, her name is Chummy. And, and Chummy is uh, expecting, and she's really nervous because uh, what kind of a mom is she going to be? How is her child going to know that she is her mom or, or the child's mom? And, and what's it going to be like? And so she's sitting down with one of her friends. He, he works uh, at the community center that they're at. Uh, he's the handyman, and his name is Fred. And so she tells Fred, right? She tells him, I'm really nervous. I don't know how I'm going to do this. How do you know? How did you know that you were a parent? And so he goes on to say that uh, in this episode, his daughter is visiting, and, and, and she's brought his, her grandson, or his grandson. And so he's hanging out with them, and he's talking to them. And he says, you know, the daughter that's here is my last surviving daughter. The, the rest of his family passed away during the Blitzkrieg of World War II. And he goes on to talk about how he couldn't be there for them as the bombs were being dropped in London. Uh, he couldn't be there for them. He couldn't protect them, so on and so forth. And he goes on to say, it was then or it was after the Blitzkrieg that I realized what makes a parent a parent, and it is proximity. And so he's holding on to his grandson as he is saying this. In other words, he is encouraging her. The way in which your child will know that he or she is loved is by you loving them and being there. And in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, we see that God not only bestows the identity uh, of Adam and Eve as his children, but we see him do it in a way by loving them because he's there with them. That's the formula, I think, for parenthood. Be present, be there. And so when he tells them, don't eat of this tree, it is not so that they would become his children, it is because they already are his children. Let's keep moving. Genesis 2, we see the theme of stewardship, and then at some point in Genesis 3, something goes terribly wrong. In chapter 3, we are introduced to the serpent who is Satan, and he begins to tempt Eve by questioning what God has already said. The assurance that her and Adam have already received by God uh, now is being questioned. The identity that they have is now being questioned. And if you think about it, temptation always begins with the question of, did God really say? 
The serpent begins to tempt Eve by questioning what God has said, and the temptation involves a twisting of God's word and then a luring desire to be like God. The, the serpent starts to tempt Eve and twist God's word by saying, you know, this is actually really good fruit for you to eat. God's actually keeping you back. He's holding you back. If you eat this, you'll actually be like him. You can be your own God. And in the context of Genesis 3, a lot is happening in Eve's head, in her heart, and in her hands. You see, in her head, she knows what God has said, but now as God's words have become twisted, she's starting to think through them. Well, I mean, this is fruit, and I mean, I can't eat it, and what if this were to happen? You begin to see this, almost this tugging of her heartstrings because there's this desire within her, like, what if I did become like God? I will become wise. I will know a lot more about good and evil. How could this be bad? And what we see in the action of her hands is that she follows through. Eve gives into temptation. Adam supports it. And in their rebellion, sin and death, enter into the world. Shalom has now been disrupted. Relationship with God has been corrupted. Genesis 3 verse 6 says it this way, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And as they rebelled, sin and death entered into the world. Now here's the thing, the story doesn't end there. Remember, we're talking about God pursuing his children. At no point up until now and even afterwards, we don't see God remove their status as children. The story doesn't end here. And so what I want you to know is that God does not leave us to ourselves. Rather, he meets us where we are with his grace by pursuing us. And he pursues us by providing a promise. The promise of a savior. After Adam and Eve sinned, they became aware that they were naked and ashamed. And some of you might say, I know the story, but do you really? That in their sin, they tried covering themselves up. They put fig leaves on themselves. They tried covering their tracks and they hid from God. And what happens? God enters into the garden and calls upon Adam. God doesn't go after the serpent. He goes directly to his kids. He goes directly to his kids. And in this moment, God wants Adam to look at him in the eye and tell him what he's done. You remember the exchange? God enters the garden and he asks, Adam, where are you? So Adam comes out. Adam, what have you done? Similar to to Delilah and I, look at me in the eye, what has happened? And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me and you created, 
made me eat of this fruit. So he blame shifts so that he doesn't have to take ownership or responsibility for his sin. What I find interesting about this exchange is that God isn't asking anything else. He's not asking about Eve. He's not even talking about consequences yet. He just wants to know, Adam, what have you done? Even in our sin, God pursues us. As God enters the garden and he goes to Adam, he doesn't go to the serpent. He doesn't have a list of consequences, though there will be consequences. He's not there yet. He's addressing his children. Even in our sin, God pursues us. And so often, we're thinking about the consequences of our sin rather than actually confessing our sin. Rather than actually confessing our sin, you and I are more like Adam where we minimalize our sin or we legitimize it by rationalizing it. Well, I had to do this. If so-and-so hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. We blame shift just like Adam did. We partially confess our sin. But the same question still stands just like it stood for Adam. Adam, what have you done? When it comes to sin, if you belong to Jesus, listen to me, the consequence is discipline, not punishment. Jesus has already bore that punishment on your behalf. There is no punishment, for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But there is discipline. But discipline is reserved for sons and daughters. That's something different. The author of Hebrews says it this way. I don't believe this is, this is not on your notes, but the authors of Hebrews say it this way. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For those in Jesus, it's not punishment, but discipline. But even in light of the consequence that we might receive, the first thing God does is meet us where we are. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He met them where they were. And so Genesis 3 shows us that God pursues his children even in their sin. Genesis 3 also teaches us that God promises restoration. As God moves toward the consequences of their actions, he curses the serpent, he doesn't allow for repentance towards the serpent, and tells the serpent and promises Adam and Eve that a savior will come from the woman. Let's go back to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So one will come from the woman and you shall, uh, bruise, or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That the serpent, that the one that is coming from the woman, the promised one that is coming, he will be wounded by Satan badly. 
that's the foreshadowing of the crucifixion. That Satan will wound him badly. However, this Savior will crush the serpent by defeating death through his resurrection. Genesis 3.15 is known as, it's a Latin term, is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The very first gospel message was preached by God himself to his children. The promise of reconciliation and restoration is made by God himself. Genesis 3 teaches us that God pursues his children, that God promises restoration, and that God provides redemption. After cursing the man and the woman, handing them their consequences, which also include being removed from the garden, God still pursues them by providing redemption. Think about it, they they could not clean themselves up. They put fig leaves on themselves, they tried covering their tracks, and so they put fig leaves that might be excuses, just like you and I make excuses about our sin. They covered their tracks up, just like you and I cover our tracks up so that people won't know what's really going on. They hid from God in shame, just like you and I hide from God in shame, trying to make it on our own so that we can just get far away from our sin at some point. so far away that inevitably we will forget it, but it doesn't happen because we can't clean ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That the weight of conviction follows him in light of his sin. And so I want you to look at verse 21 in the same chapter. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In this verse, we see a foreshadowing of what the promised Savior will do for his people, that he will sacrifice himself in our place and for our redemption that it is the grace of God that covers sinners like you and me. So not only does God pursue us outside of our sin, he pursues us in our sin, and he pursues us after our sin. That's the beauty of the covenant God makes with man, that he pursues his children at all costs. God's covenant involves his pursuit, his promise, and his provision. Verse 21 shows us that an animal was sacrificed so that Adam and Eve's sin would be atoned for, and then he takes the skins, and what does he do? He covers Adam and Eve. It is the grace of God that covers us. And so the final question in all of this is why does any of this matter? As we look at the first gospel, as we look at God covering us, why does this matter, particularly in the season of Advent? And it matters because the promise of restoration and redemption is made by God himself. 
He doesn't leave us so that we would fend for ourselves, but, provide, excuse me, but provides a way in which we may be reconciled to him through Christ. And in the pages of redemptive history, or as the pages of redemptive history unfold and God's people deepen their rebellion, the promised Savior eventually enters the world as the man, Jesus Christ. And Paul says it this way in Romans 5, beginning in verse 17. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That one man is Adam. That because of Adam's sin, not only are we born into sin, but we inherit his guilt and we inherit death. He continues, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. He's going to continue to unpack this more and more, Paul says. Therefore, as one, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is literally our only hope so that we would be reconciled to God. Jesus is the way by which we go from being children of wrath to children of God. He is our only hope from going from spiritual death to spiritual life. He is our only hope in the days of absolute uncertainty, loss, and grief. He's our only hope because Jesus, because of Jesus, we are not left to ourselves. God meets us where we are with his grace, whether for comfort or conviction, both draw us into himself. That's why it matters. And so as we close, if you know Jesus, I want you to find confidence to confess and repent of your sin. To not be like our first parents. Try to cover yourself up. Try to make yourself clean. Try to cover up your tracks and hide in hopes that it's all going to be cool and well. I want you to have the confidence this morning to put your sin on the table. I want you to have confidence because of Jesus to answer the question that Adam didn't answer when God asked, what have you done? And I promise you from the pages of scripture, what we see is that when we put it on the table, God sweeps us up with his grace, reminds us that we belong to him that he loves us and his grace is for us and he has demonstrated this grace through sending his son Jesus to die uh, our death on the cross for our sin so that we might be reconciled to him. So church, I, my, my, my hope is that you would repent, confess and repent of your sin so that you would be comforted and if you don't know Jesus, my, my hope is that you would confess and repent of your sin and be saved. That if you don't know Jesus, 
you are still at war with God. That there is no peace between you and God. You are considered an enemy of God. But once again, the pages of Scripture teaches us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So for the Christian, man, my goal, my hope, my desire is that you would confess and repent so that you would be comforted and your eyes would be fixed upon the Lord Jesus. And if you do not know Jesus, my hope and prayer is that you would confess of your sins so that you would be saved, that you would call upon him and be saved so that your eyes too would be fixed on the person and work of Jesus. Why did we start with the idea of covenant for Advent? We started with this idea because covenant reminds us of the promise that God pursues his children. Let's pray. God, as we close this part of our time, Depending on the kind of season we're having, sometimes we might say amen with confidence because maybe it's a good season. Maybe it's been a good week. Sometimes we might even say amen with not so much confidence because it's been really hard. But God, if, if we are to find comfort, even conviction in your word, it is that you do not leave us to ourselves, but that you meet us with your grace. And so God, that's my prayer this morning. My prayer is that we would surrender ourselves before you so that we would experience your grace. So that we would be convicted of our sins. So that we would be comforted knowing that we belong to you. So that our eyes would be fixed upon Jesus, to be reminded that, that you keep your promises, that in Genesis we see that not only uh, uh, do you foreshadow what Jesus will do for us, but in that you promise that a Savior will come. God, and as your people wait, and as they wait, and as they dive deeper into their sin and then wait some more, Jesus is, enters into human history. He lives in our stead. He dies in our place. He picks up, he enters our mess and takes responsibility for our sin. And though he died on the cross, three days later, he resurrects by the power of your Holy Spirit. providing us with a new life and reconciliation. And he promises that one day he will return to reclaim his bride, the church. God, we love you because you are a faithful God. And so again, Lord, I'm just asking, would you please meet us where we are with your grace, wherever that might be for my brothers and sisters.